Welcome to Untangle, the podcast from five-star app meditation studio and Muse, the brain-sensing headband that gives you feedback on your meditation practice. I'm Patricia Karpis, co-founder of Meditation Studio and your host on Untangle, along with my co-host, Muse founder, Ariel Garten. As many of you know, we have over 40 meditation collections on Meditation Studio, and one of them is specifically geared to veterans. We're excited to share that in honor of Veterans Day, we're making this one very special collection free to everyone. Over 20 meditations on everything from getting a better night's sleep, to breath and body practices, to mindfulness for trauma. It's an amazing collection. And as always, if you have feedback, questions, ideas, or stories to share, email us at founders at meditationstudioapp.com. Now, here's Ariel for this week's interview. Welcome to another beautiful episode of Untangle. Today, my guest is my friend, Dr. Jay Sanguinetti. He's a neuroscientist who is trained in philosophy, neuroscience, and cognitive psychology. And he's interested now in looking at non-invasive ways that we can stimulate the brain to increase well-being. He's also a meditator, and his most interesting mode of stimulating the brain to increase well-being is one that helps to enhance meditation. In today's episode, we're going to dive into different ways that our brain activates during meditation and understand his research and how it might be able to bring new tools and techniques to our meditators' arsenal. So welcome, Jay. It's great to be here. Always great to talk to you. Wonderful to have you here. So it's incredibly exciting to be able to talk to somebody who's really actively researching on the front lines of neuroscience and meditation. And I'm excited to hear about some of the different perspectives than the ones that we've encountered previously. Happy to talk about it. Can we start actually by just diving into your experience as a meditator and telling us a little bit about that? So my meditation practice has been ongoing for about 12 years. And uh, I actually got into it because I went to a scientific meeting and saw the Dalai Lama give a talk. And um, I went to the Society for Neuroscience to see him give a speech. It's a very controversial topic uh, to have the Dalai Lama talk to a bunch of brain scientists. And um, I was so blown away by it that I picked up my own mindfulness practice, read a bunch of books uh, like Thich Nhat Hanh and other uh, mindfulness writers like that, and um, really immediately experienced some of the benefits, um, mostly because at that point I was an undergraduate and I had quite a bit of anxiety. Uh, so public speaking anxiety. Um, even being in large groups uh, sort of generated a bit of anxiety for me by bringing my attention to the breath, which is what I was doing at the time. All of that anxiety went away uh, during mindfulness. And it was sort of like, oh, this is another way that Jay can be in the world. For the last 11 years, that's been really a personal practice more than uh, something I ever thought I would study as a scientist. And so, you know, I've always had it in this compartment of being this very personal, transformative practice uh, for myself. The transformations have been slow, but as I think back to the person I was back then, uh, it's been pretty large, actually. Uh, so even though incrementally, it's kind of hard to see the changes. Um, now that I look back, you know, at the person I was when I was an undergraduate, anxious to speak, I would be anxious to come on your podcast. Uh, and now, you know, if I have a little bit of anxiety, I do a sitting practice, and then I think about connecting with you. And now I'm totally excited to do it. And I know you as somebody who is incredibly calm and present. You know, we're together at BrainMind a couple of weeks ago, and I was some sharing something super deep and vulnerable about myself. And you were just sitting there so incredibly calmly and, you know, so present and so open. And I'm like, does this guy really want to listen to this right now? And you're like, yes, <laughs> I'm, I'm okay to be here with you. It was, it was really impressive. Like, clearly the practice has paid off. So you also work with uh, some amazing teachers. Can you tell us a little bit about the work you're doing with Shenzhen Young and who he is for those that don't know him and how that evolved? So Shenzhen is um, a well-known mindfulness teacher, a Western teacher. He's originally from Los Angeles. He went over to Japan at first while he was a graduate student, learned some of the Japanese uh, mindfulness practices, and then went all around East Asia and uh, became a, a practicing monk for a while, and then brought those practices back to the United States. What makes Shenzhen a little different than some of the other well-known mindfulness teachers from the West 
is that he's really interested in science. And so for someone like me, who has a very geeky scientific mind, uh, Shenzhen tends to relate the practice uh, both to science and neuroscience, but also creates a lot of metaphors and things that really make sense to someone like me who thinks in terms of scientific models. So he's kind of the perfect person to work with in that sense. And somebody that I, I know most people will be incredibly honored to be able to get to spend as much time as you do with him and to be able to learn from his perspectives. Yeah, he's, it's a total pleasure to have him in the lab. He's He's been meditating for 50 years at this point. Um, and, you know, every small thing can set off joy in him, but he really has always wanted to be in a lab and to, to do science on this level. And so he's just lit up every day he comes in the lab. All the research assistants who are mostly undergraduates, you know, just when you have someone who's sort of that fully present in their joy uh, around all the time, it just lights everybody else up. So can you tell us some of the things that you and Shenzhen are thinking about in studying in the lab? Shenzhen has been thinking for a long time about trying to find an accelerant for mindfulness. So ways to accelerate mindfulness training specifically. So neurofeedback is one of them, which of course uh, your listeners will know through Muse. Um, he's tried a lot of different technologies, which all work in different respects. Um, but he's really been looking for one that accelerates it with a sort of exponential curve, if you want to think about it like that. Um, so something that really gets in the system and really accelerates the practice. For example, can you, can you meditate for two weeks or two months and get the effects that you would get from meditating for two years? And so as Shinzen and I have been talking about that and trying to figure out technologies that can dramatically accelerate the practice, but do it in a safe way, and we really settled on one that involves focused ultrasound. So modulating the brain with ultrasound, uh, which is a way to safely and non-invasively modulate the brain, but we can target deep brain structures. And so um, we're really excited about that because it, it allows us to target deeper brain structures that are involved in mindfulness that you really can't target with other technologies. Um, and, and they may actually give us a real chance to accelerate the practice dramatically. I almost feel like we should step back for a second. Like, wow, there are targets in your brain that you can stimulate and, you know, uh, recreate experiences of mindfulness. That's, that's a pretty phenomenal fact or, or potential fact. Yeah. And, there, and there's one other subtle point, too. What we're testing now is, is it enough to induce a mindfulness state or can we actually target systems to increase neuroplasticity or increase the ability of the brain to learn so people can actually learn the mindfulness skills? And so the direction we're actually moving in is really trying to help people learn the skills of mindfulness more than simply inducing the states. Um, and so we really have been looking through the mindfulness literature at all the different brain targets that are showing up both as you go into a mindfulness state, but also if you look at long-term meditators, you see a whole host of brain areas that seem to be engaged and changed as people learn these skills of mindfulness and then integrate them into their life and into their body, essentially. Um, and so really, we've been looking at mindfulness skill acquisition in the brain. And I can tell you about those brain areas if you're interested. Let's jump in. I am super excited. I'm also much more excited about the idea of how we enhance somebody's skills and learning pathways than how we zap somebody for enlightenment. But that's a conversation we'll have yeah. at the end. Let's first dive into sure. really understanding what are the parts of the brain that are involved and how might they be shifted? Sure. So uh, there's a field emerging called the contemplative neurosciences, uh, sort of founded by Richie Davison, who's a really well-known mindfulness um, experimenter and, and scientist up at Wisconsin-Madison. So that field is very young, um, and it's 10, 15, 20 years old. And so we're just at the beginning of learning about how mindfulness is changing the brain. But what we're learning is that it really depends on the type of mindfulness that you're doing and sort of how you define mindfulness. Um, now this is a very hard concept to define as a scientist, and it's probably not one construct. It's probably multiple systems in the brain that are working together to allow you to bring your attention to the present moment and in doing that in what's called a non-judgmental way. 
Uh, what that means is it's not just paying attention, but if you have a sort of negative thought, like, Jay, you're being stupid right now, you know, it's it's allowing that to happen, paying attention to it and letting it go, not not sort of getting wrapped up in it and bringing your attention back. And so depending on how you define that and how you shape that in mindfulness training, you see different brain areas changing. So let's back up just for one second. So, um, you know, people might wonder what's the difference between meditation and mindfulness. So meditation is the practice that builds the skill of mindfulness and mindfulness. Mm -hmm. We're broadly describing as the ability to pay attention in the present moment in a non-judgmental way. Yeah, exactly. Cool. So now meditation yeah, defines a whole host of practices uh, that can go from specifically training your attention to doing body scans to being on a more formal path in Buddhism, for example. Whereas mindfulness is a way of training the attention and specifically training a form of awareness is really where where we want to get to. And that form of awareness is being present-centered and non-judgmental, if you want to think about it that way. So in the lab, we actually talk about mindful awareness. And really, we're trying to train people into mindful awareness. Into becoming non-judgmentally present moment aware of their thoughts, feelings, bodily sensations, environments, experience. Yeah. But then in the lab, when I start to try to define what non-judgmental means, that becomes very difficult. Um, So how do you study non-judgmentality and how do you test that? So one of the great things about working with Shenzhen is he's really defined what mindful awareness is. And he defines it in terms of three core attention skills. Uh, And we can step through them. The first one is concentration power. So if I'm holding you as my object of attention, my ability to hold you is my concentration power. If somebody walks in the room right now and my attention jumps to them and I'm trying to focus on you, then I don't have a very good concentration power. Um, Sensory clarity is the next one. That one is being able to track What's going on in your sensory stream? Um, I used to play baseball, so I think baseball is a good analogy here. So if you think about a baseball um, batter, they can detect the ball at 90 miles an hour with millisecond precision. So that's that's their ability to detect the sensory information very, very, very fine grade. And of course, that can be trained as a skill, as an attention skill. That's sensory clarity. The hardest one to define is equanimity. Equanimity essentially means having a balanced mind, um, not sort of pushing or pulling on the sensory stream. Uh, Most of your listeners will have an experience of getting in a fight with someone and really, you know, you're you're sort of angry and you want to say the right thing. If you can just sort of let go of that anger, let go of that emotion and bring your attention back to the fight, you're sort of more effective, actually. Um, So that's equanimity, just being able to sort of let go and bring your attention back. So anybody who wants a bit of a primer on concentration, clarity, and equanimity, you can go back to our earlier episode with Jeff Warren, who's also a student of Shenzhen Young. And we talked in depth about those three concepts and what they mean. Back to you, Jay. Great. Great. And Shenzhen also has a lot of free materials on the internet. So if you just look up uh, those concepts, you'll see some PDFs that you can download. So, you know, that's a nice model for for someone like me. I'm actually a perception neuroscientist to try to really dig into what do we mean by mindful awareness? What are the systems in the brain that are allowing you to focus your attention back into the present moment? Um, and, And then how do we look at those systems in the brain? And so it turns out that when you first start learning these mindfulness training skills, uh, you see certain changes in the brain. Now, those changes tend to involve attention centers. Uh, one, one center is called the uh, anterior cingulate cortex, which is really involved when your attention is on a task. And in the beginning, as most of your listeners will know, when you're trying to do mindfulness, it's very difficult. It's hard to sort of know where your consciousness is, where your attention is. And you have to sort of notice when it goes away and you have to bring it back to the object. Now, that's partly the interior cingulate cortex. It's monitoring your attention and it kind of knows when you go off task and it helps you bring it back. So actually, one of the things that the ACC is really good at is monitoring when there's been an error or when something is off task. So that act of being on task and then knowing that, oops, something's wrong. That's the ACC coming in to saying, oh, there's an error. Let's recorrect. 
Right. So if your task is focused on the breath, and then you start having a thought that this is stupid, I should stop. That's an error. Essentially, that's an error signal that your brain is creating. And if you notice it, apply some equanimity to it, let it go and bring your attention back to the breath. Now you're back on task. And that's that's part of a sort of global attention control system. It's called top down attention. And so if you look at a beginner meditator, you kind of see these types of systems coming online. But what's interesting is that as you advance into the practice, those systems become implicit. And then you can do the next level in the practice. Can we talk a little bit about the global attention system and what some of the other aspects of this attention system are? So there's two basic modes of attention. There's the top-down attention, which is sort of your conscious monitoring, sort of bringing yourself on task. Then there's the sort of more unconscious attention, which is, I live in the desert. I live in Tucson. We had a lot of rattlesnakes this year. And so if I'm walking on the trail and I see a rattlesnake, I can respond to that before even becoming consciously aware. The, the rattlesnake signal goes into my brain in a very fast pathway through the visual system. And it can drive my behavior before I'm even aware. And that actually happened to me. I almost stepped on a rattlesnake ah. a couple months ago. Yeah, uh, it was during sunset. I walked off the trail to grab a picture. I wasn't paying attention to where I was walking. So top-down attention, my attention was on the sunset. It was beautiful. And I stepped and I stopped stepping. So my attention system totally unconsciously saw that rattlesnake and stopped me from stepping on it. And then I kind of zoomed away. I I moved my leg over and realized, oh my God, that was a rattlesnake. (laughs) Um, Thank you, Unconscious Attention System. We appreciate Jay. We're glad he's here. And so both of these systems are getting trained by mindfulness, by bringing your attention back to the object, like the breath. You start training these systems to uh, be more automatically present, if you want to think about it like that. These attention systems start interacting with other systems in the brain. And it, it seems like one of the systems that's really being acted on is part of the learning system in the brain called the basal ganglia. Um, And the basal ganglia is part of the habit formation system. So as you go throughout your life, you start associating stimuli with rewards. Uh, This is classical conditioning. And what happens is that by associating a stimulus with a reward, say your cell phone, you you associate the ding of the cell phone with or report somebody on Facebook is liking your post or whatever it is, over time, those associations become implicit and unconscious. And most of our behavior is driven by this implicit, unconscious habit formation system in the basal ganglia. So just to jump back for listeners who listened to Alex Korb's episode, you're going to remember we learned all about habit formation in the basal ganglia. When you find something that's rewarding or motivating, you have a surge of dopamine and that that dopamine then triggers your basal ganglia to action. So that's why reward actually motivates you to physically move your body and act. And then when that system gets fired several times over, it kind of remembers that constellation of activities, the firing, the movement, and that becomes the unconscious habit formation, the habit loop. Exactly. And in a certain sense, the whole system is driving you towards action. Um, there, there's sort of two main goals of the brain. It's to predict uh, in one sense and to drive you to action in the other. And underneath that, it's keeping everything in homeostasis. Uh, so it's trying to keep everything in balance and all the brain systems are trying to balance. And so this habit formation system is evolutionarily very advantageous. It helps us to not have to be consciously aware of every association. So these habit formation systems are actually very helpful. You know, we tend to think about habits as a bad thing, but habits are actually a way of our brain using less energy and resources to do things that should be everyday and normal. Brushing our teeth, all of these things that should become habits in our life do, um, and they become a sort of unconscious process. However, they can be co-opted. Dum, 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 dum. But that same system, uh, because it's automatic, it then becomes hard to undo a lot of those associations. And so the most extreme case of this system going haywire is addiction, uh, which is something that Shenzhen and I are actually working to treat. And so the addiction circuitry is the same habit formation system where instead of an adaptive, um, positive 
habit formation pattern, now you get dopamine associated with a stimulus and a response that's totally maladaptive. And even if you don't have an addiction, um, most of us have done something like picked up our cell phone when we're driving our cars. Uh, we all know that this is something we shouldn't be doing. And yet we're so associating the ding of the cell phone with a reward that we automatically do it in our cars. And then we go, oh my gosh, I got to stop doing this right before you run into the person in front of you. Then your ACC fires, you're like, oh, that was a mistake to look at my cell phone. So what's really exciting about mindfulness is that it may be acting on that system in a very fundamental way. Um, and so it's exciting for me as a person who's trying to, to, to create an intervention to treat addiction. But I think it works for everybody as well, even people who don't have formal addictions, because what seems to be happening is by bringing your attention into the current moment. So let's say my cell phone rings or it gives me a, a ding and I think, ooh, I want to see what's on there. If I can apply mindfulness to that very moment while I'm driving my car, I can notice, okay, I'm driving the car, first of all, very important. Uh, but also I can notice the body state. Oh, I feel, you know, actually, I feel a little bit like I can feel the dopamine. Now, I know that may not be totally true, but I feel a little bit of like a, a forward response. Like I want to push, I want to pick up the phone, right? It's this little just drivenness urge. If you pay attention, you can see that happening in your body. You can see yourself urging. And if you continue to pay attention, then you break the urge. And I think that's part of the power of mindfulness. Wow. You, yeah. So yeah, let that sink in, right? So you break, by breaking the urge, think about what's then happening in the basal ganglia. If dopamine is firing, trying to get the reward, but now you've broken the urge, then what are you doing? You're actually conditioning another behavior. That's what the basal ganglia is constantly doing. It's always conditioning behaviors. It's its, it's only job, essentially. And then it's conditioning behaviors for action. And so every time I get in the car now, I actually do a very tiny mindfulness practice where I say, I know my phone's in the car. I know my phone is going to ding or vibrate and I need to pay attention to that. And so if I do this over and over in the car, eventually I'll break that pattern in the basal ganglia and the habit formation system. That is fascinating. So, you know, anybody who struggled with addiction or, um, being able to, you know, bring mindfulness to their eating or using mindfulness to overcome any unconscious habit that has been conditioned, you know that when you bring your attention to the experience, it gives you a little room to change it. And most people probably think that, okay, well, I'm bringing my attention to the experience. I make bring my awareness to it. I'm now taking the unconscious habit and making it conscious. And so now I can make a different choice. That's sort of the, the words that we use, the dialogue we use around it. But what seems to actually be happening in the brain is that moment of coming into presence and becoming aware of your, your bodily sensations and your experience and your urges actually is acting on that basal ganglia system to break the habit loop. Yeah. I mean, at this point, we can hypothesize that. And if your viewers and listeners are interested, I would look up Judd Brewer. Uh, he's got some great TED Talks on this. And, and he's really the one who's formalizing these notions. Um, so we, we have these little hints in the neuroimaging data and the fMRI literature that as you meditate, you see increases in basal ganglia activity uh, and changes to that system. Now, it's, it's sort of been an anomaly in the data so far. And so we don't quite have a fully fleshed out theory about this yet. Um, but if you think about what, how mindfulness is breaking behavior habits or behavior patterns, it must be acting on the system. I mean, that's the habit formation system. And so it's really exciting to think about how that works. And, and, and I feel like sort of as I, I know it myself, it gives me a little more motivation to keep doing the practice now because I know, okay, maybe this time I picked up my phone and that's okay. I need to be nice to myself. I didn't get anybody in my car. So let's, let's be loving to Jay. <laughs> and now the next time I get in the car, I'm going to try it again because I know that basal ganglia system is really kind of working against me in this case, but it can change. And so as soon as you know that, it kind of motivates you, which is also motivation is in the basal ganglia as well. So, <laughs> you know, this whole system is sort of working with itself. 
to motivate you to try to change your behavior. It's so interesting how when we actually bring light onto what the processes are, whether we're just thinking about them logically or really understanding them from the neural side, it allows us to enhance the learning and enhance the outcomes. I have a little off-topic question. Maybe you don't know the answer to this, but often when we talk in trauma therapy about mindfulness, and Dan Siegel talks about this a lot, the act of coming into the present is extraordinarily healing from a trauma perspective. Do you have a sense of what's going on there? That's a really good question. I talked to my uh, significant other, Natalie Bryant, about this a lot because uh, she studies a system called a hippocampal memory formation system. Um, it's basically the system that processes space, so spatial navigation, but it creates the context for episodic memory. Uh, episodic memory is your biographical memory. So, for example, in the unfortunate case of trauma, you'll have very specific memories about the space, the time, if it, if it happened with other people. You have the sort of all this information that you can bring up as an experience, uh, and that's your autobiographical memory. And so in trauma, that system changes, uh, and it's very connected to the amygdala, the emotion center, and, and most of the limbic system. And so the way that memories actually get made is different when you're in a traumatic experience. Uh, and that's part of the story underneath post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, is that because the memory gets laid down in a fundamentally different way, uh, you don't process it in a normal way. You don't process it during sleep, for example, and then it can sort of reactivate in a way that most memories don't. Um, and so what's what's your normal response to that? If you have PTSD, for example, is you resist that. You really, you don't want to have that experience. You don't want to relive that, which makes total sense. It's terrifying. I mean, if you have trauma, you have memories I mean, I've had some trauma, so unfortunately I've lived this and lived through all the therapy done to it, thankfully. Mm -hmm. But when yeah. you have trauma, you have these thoughts and memories that continue to come back to you with a real physiological sensation with, you know, the same sensations of terror at the time. And those memories can change and get uglier and worse as time goes on. Unlike most other memories that simply are a memory that you go back and you visit benignly and you return. And so what's really interesting and intriguing about mindfulness practice is that you are sort of contextualizing yourself and your environment in a slightly different way. So by bringing your attention into the present moment and having a sort of metacognitive, sort of a third person viewpoint, um, it, it may actually allow you to process some of that traumatic episodic memory in a slightly different way. Now, this is just an armchair hypothesis. I'm not, I don't think anyone's tested this. But the notion is sort of like exposure therapy. So in exposure therapy, what you do is you bring up the traumatic experience and then you reprocess it. And, and so I think there's a fundamental thing going on here with the reprocessing that's happening in mindfulness that can really help with trauma. Now, of course, not always. By, by applying your attention to it, you can just make yourself more anxious. And that does happen a lot in, in meditation practice. But it seems like if you can bring that up or, you know, if you're just sitting in mindfulness and the traumatic thought comes up, even if you don't bring it up, if you can sit with it and allow it to exist and perhaps apply some loving kindness, for example, to it or loving kindness to yourself, then you can reprocess that experience. Uh, and if you're doing that over time, you may be able to lay down essentially a new memory for that experience. In psychotherapy, we talk about trauma as uh, memories that have not been properly integrated. So it's something that exists mm -hmm. outside of your own narrative. And it's so painful that you can yeah. never reapproach it to actually bring it into your narrative as a part of your narrative. And so a lot of psychotherapeutic yeah. trauma methodologies are about distracting and engaging the body and mind in different ways while approaching the memory so that you're not triggered by all the physiology of it, um, but you're able to approach yeah. the memory simply as a memory and then have the opportunity for reintegration. So, you know, what you just yeah. described, this act of being in the present, being able to shift into a different state, one of loving kindness, when you approach the memory, offers the possibility of, you know, engaging your systems in enough of a different activity that you can activate a little bit of that memory and start to reapproach it and therefore reintegrate it or rewrite yeah. it in the case of being, being in a state of loving kindness. 
we need a massive disclaimer on all of this, which is, you know, please don't begin trauma therapy yourself based on this episode. Please seek the guidance of a professional of which there are many who are able to effectively help move through trauma. Definitely seek out professional help. Um, Yeah. And that, that really gets to another brain system that shows up often in mindfulness research, which is the insula. But the insula seems to be one of the main systems that changes across different types of meditation practice. And that's because one of the jobs of the insula is to map the body and map the body states. So if you think about your body and you tune into it, you've got physical sensations, of course, but you also have an emotional tone or what Antonio Damasio called the emotional landscape. And so one of the powerful things I think about mindfulness is that by bringing your attention into the present, you're bringing it into the body instead of in this sort of mental la-la land that we exist in half the day, 49% of the time, according to the studies. Uh, you're bringing your attention back into the body. And if you've got trauma, for most of us, it's related to the body. Uh, you know, it's most of the trauma either happened to the body or, you know, we, when, when we call up an episodic memory, we can remember where our body was. And so spatial body representations are fundamental to trauma. You know, I've, I've had trauma as well. And so when I call my trauma up, I dissociated the trauma from my body. And so part of the integration work is, you know, the trauma happened. I can't undo it. I can't run away from it. It's with me for the rest of my life. But what I can do is when it comes up, I can embody it and I can, I can, apply attention, I can apply a love, I can apply forgiveness, for example, I can apply all of these sort of mental skills to it, that allow me to relate to it in a different way, sort of reorienting your body towards the trauma. And for anybody with trauma, just to give you some hopefulness, um, I've been able to really significantly dramatically overcome it to the point where it, it doesn't at this point really doesn't exist in my day to day. It's, it's relatively recent for me. Um, but trauma really is something that you can work with. You can dismantle, you can undo, um, and you can stop being haunted by. So there's, there's a lot of very powerful techniques when properly applied with, you know, the right therapist that can be really effective. So let's move into your work specifically, we started to sort of hint at areas of the brain that could be affected through uh, stimulation to improve mindfulness or the learning of mindfulness. Let's dig into the area that you're interested in right now. So um, the other big brain region that shows up in mindfulness training is the default mode network. Uh, So this is a network in the brain that is offline, essentially, when you're on task. So if I'm paying attention to a task, doing a math problem, for example, you don't see much of the default mode. But if I sort of go offline, go internal, I sort of start thinking to myself, talking to myself, planning my day, that's considered the default mode. It's sort of the mind-wandering, self-referential system. Uh, and it's, it's been discovered in the last 15 years or so. It's been very controversial as a brain area. But what we do know and what we can say is that it is really related to self-referential processing. So selfing of Jay, if you want to think about it like that. It's not taking a selfie of Jay, that's Jay thinking about Jay. <laughs> yes, Jay is selfing. <laughs> and what we find, in, in at least the Western world, uh, people are in the default mode about 47% of the time, uh, which isn't a bad thing. You know, We often talk about the default mode as a bad thing, and it's not a bad thing. We need to be able to room. We need to be able to mind wonder and sort of think to ourselves and daydream, be creative, things like that. But what we also have found is that the default mode can go amok, just like basal ganglia. And what that looks like is rumination, for example. So if you have depression, some people ruminate. They think mostly about negative information a lot of the time. 70, 80% of their day is locked in negative thinking. Happens in anxiety as well. I used to do this all the time, for example. Um, And basically, most of the other psychological disorders, you'll see an overactivation of the default mode network. Now, guess what you see when you put long-term meditators into the MRI scanner? So in the Justin Brewer, you see... Yes, Justin Brewer and and many others now have, have replicated this. 
is you see less default mode activation specifically when you're applying mindfulness practice. It's also a very interesting uh, neural correlate to what we experience as meditators. So we often talk about, you know, us having a monkey mind that chatters away. And as you meditate, you quiet the monkey mind and that a long-term meditator has a much quieter mind. Well, this could be the very neural system that relates to that experience. The quieting the default mode network is the experience of the quieting of the mind, the, the ending the chatter of the monkey. I think that's a great way to put it. One way we talk about it in the lab is self-interference. So I used to play basketball. It's very hard to be at the free throw line when you have a thousand people in the audience watching you. I used to play in Atlanta, Georgia. So in the championship games, we'd have 3,000 people and they're yelling at you and saying bad things about your mother and all this stuff is going on. <laughs> and what you need to do is bring your attention back to the present moment. But if, if someone gets in your head, then you have this little loop going. Oh, why did they talk about my mom? Oh, they shouldn't do that. You know, and that loops. And the more that happens, the harder it is to focus on the net. And so that's that's the default mode. It's it's maybe that chatter is not specifically happening in the default mode, but what the default mode is doing is it's triggering that whole process. So if someone talks about my mom, I know I shouldn't think about it, and now I'm at the free throw line. And if if I trigger the thinking to myself, that's coming from the default mode. Sorry, can you just can you just talk about that clarification again? So it's not the default mode that's doing the chattering. It's the default mode that is triggering the networks that will then chatter. Yeah, it's triggering the self-interference, if you want to think about it, if we're talking specifically about a task. Because the chatter, if I'm actually literally talking to myself in my head, that's probably involving the same areas that I use to talk to you. So the Broca's and Wernicke's area... Uh, the language centers in the brain, for example, are also involved. And so it, it would be incorrect to say that all of this is occurring inside of the default mode. We can't say something like that. But what we can say is the default mode is really the system of sort of interfering with yourself. Because myself, in this case, wants to make the basket. That's all I want to do. I don't want to have all this extra stuff going on. But there's something inside of me that's driving me to think about, oh, I'm so mad at this person and I, you know, you get all kind of locked up in that negative emotion. Um, that seems to be triggered by this internal default mode system. But the default mode seems to be active even in times when somebody isn't actively self-interfering. You know, I'm sitting True. here and I'm thinking about a conversation that I had or, you know, something that's benign that's not interrupting what I'm doing because it's maybe I've even chosen to do this because I'm just sitting here doing nothing. And that's still my default mode that has initiated that whole process. And that's why I say it's not all bad. You know, we kind of make it out to be this bad person in our, in our head or whatever. And it's a really good process. But in the cases when you're trying to pay attention, for example, or in cases where you get in a fight with your girlfriend or boyfriend and you want to stop thinking about it, you know, you kind of want to let go of it because it's you're done. You don't need to continuously think about it for five days in a row. But uh, how else you know, will that, you prove in your own mind that you're right? Exactly. Right. Like, what are you trying to get to? You know, so your ability to sort of let go of that and just get out of that system, you know, that's part of the default mode system as well. It's also involved in episodic memory, spatial navigation. I mean, it's involved in a lot of other things. And so we kind of need we need to be careful about saying we want to turn it off. We definitely don't want to turn off the default mode. What we want to do is we want to give you control over it. And, and I think that that notion is really important for mindfulness is that it's training our attention, these, these core attention skills as we think of them, to allow you to disengage from the default mode and re-engage in whatever you're trying to engage in. Awesome. So where have you been going with the default mode, knowing that this network is symbolic or knowing that this network is meaningful within a mindfulness practice because the decrease or the intervention of it allows you to become more mindfully attentive in the moment. And being mindfully attentive makes you less uh, vulnerable to just flipping into default mode and, and self-interfering. Knowing those, where have you been going? So we've been using non-invasive brain stimulation to target that system, the default mode, and also the basal ganglia. So we can talk about that too. In an attempt to help the person learn these mindfulness skills quicker, so we're trying to modulate the circuitry so when the person is trying to do the practice, uh, it, they, can, they can sort of get it. Ah, this is what it's like 
for me to be out of the default mode. And then they can sort of get the rewards from the practice quicker. That's fascinating. So in a sense, you are kind of training the brain by turning off the default mode. You're inherently or implicitly showing the brain what it could be like. Also, the person has this cognitive understanding of like, oh, this is what it's like. Okay. Um, Which then allows them to return to that state themselves more easily on their own. That's the idea? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so we probably wouldn't say we're turning off the default mode. What we're doing is we're making it more likely to, uh, or making it less likely to engage. Um, So we're down-regulating it or we're interfering with it. Um, the default mode is still going to be there. We're just making it a little less likely to fire. And then in that state, if they're then trying to focus on their breath or doing a labeling practice, which is what Shenzhen teaches, then it's, you know, usually for a person when they sit down, it's like three seconds of meditation and then 20 seconds of self-referential thinking, thinking to themselves or whatever. And then they realize, oh my gosh, my mind has gone off in la-la land. And then they bring their attention back. Well, in this case, it could be, you know, 20 seconds of doing the practice and three seconds of mind wandering before you bring it back. And so it's just sort of flipping the ratio of this sort of internal experience. We have to, you know, ask the obvious question, zapping the brain. Is that that even to me, I, I work in neurotechnology and I would be quite hesitant to have anyone zap my brain. I'm, I'm very, you know, very in favor of simply giving people feedback about what's going on, but actually anything that starts to write or interfere, I would be very hesitant to engage in. Um, tell us about your thoughts around that, how people tend to react and, and what your feelings are. That's a great question and a fundamentally important question fundamentally important question yes yes because what we're talking about is changing the plasticity of the brain essentially we're changing the learning mechanisms and the ability of the brain to learn Um, now it turns out that essentially any stimulus you put in the brain is going to change the brain that's the job and the function of the brain and so there's a lot of safety issues just around the basic uh, biophysics of that And so we're using focused ultrasound at the low intensity levels. Um, These are the same intensity levels they use for imaging on the fetus or slightly higher than that. But it's usually around 300 to 700 milliwatts per centimeter square. And and we're pretty confident that that's going to be safe. Now, we know several sessions is safe. The question is, what if you do it 20 times? Uh, We just don't know yet how safe that is. But we know putting 200 to 500 milliwatts of ultrasound in your brain for a very brief amount of time is safe. Now, the question is, what do you do with that brain system once you've altered it? Because let's say we take people with addiction and we stimulate their default mode network, but they don't do anything with it. So we're not doing any intervention or any therapy or mindfulness training. It could be that then we make them more in their default mode network because now the system is open to learning because we've stimulated it and now they go into rumination and that rumination becomes sort of conditioned by the system. And so part of what we're doing is we're trying to open the brain up for learning and then making sure that people are using those brain networks to learn mindfulness. And that's really a crucial point uh, about the safety because otherwise you could pick up another bad habit. We're making your brain more likely to pick up a bad habit, for example. Everything we're talking about is coming with the massive caveat of only in the research lab. Don't try this at home. Only with the trained professional. Only a couple times if you choose to volunteer for Jay's experiments. But there's, you know, an interesting suggestion or hint about what this can teach us about how we learn ourselves and other possibly this is safe or possibly other safer methodologies that could derive from this knowledge that you're learning that could allow you to train your default mode network more effectively. Or some of the other brain systems as well. We're really going towards inhibiting certain brain systems instead of stimulating them. If you kind of think about brain stimulation, you'd probably think, okay, we talked about the anterior cingulate cortex. It's involved in attention. While you're learning meditation, you may think stimulating that making it easier to focus your attention may be the right direction to go for mindfulness training. But what we're actually trying to do is remove some of the things that are getting in the way of paying attention or getting in the way of mindful awareness. Um, And that's kind of an alternative way to think about all of this. But 
um, that's a very interesting testable hypothesis about how to accelerate the mindfulness training. Would you accelerate someone by stimulating them into the, the skill or would you remove all the stuff that's getting in the way of the skill? So when they try to learn it, it's just more, it's, it's easier to get into those skills. And that actually is a really interesting corollary with how in Buddhism we think about the self. So we think about when we learn mindfulness, what we're doing is we are quieting, you know, our aggressive sides, our angry sides, not quieting, but we're, we're changing the relationship with, and the joy that is ourselves can naturally emerge. That when we start to unpeel all these layers and unpeel all of the conditioning, what we find underneath is a full, whole, joyful, engaged, present human being. Shenzhen Young has a, a really great way of talking about this that gets right to the core of some of the Buddhist philosophy. So basically, there's this notion in, in Buddhism of the four noble truths. Um, and normally, we wouldn't be bringing something like that into a scientific lab, because how do you test something like that? But Shenzhen's actually formalized it in logic in a way that we can test it. And it's sort of exciting to be able to think about that. So the basic idea of the Four Noble Truths is that at least human consciousness, but probably all of consciousness, is imbued with suffering. Um, now, most of us think we stub our toe and we're suffering. But the notion here is that there's a more fundamental sense of suffering that's imbuing all of consciousness. They call it dukkha uh, in Buddhism. We all have this dukkha, this, this suffering. We have this suffering underneath. And I think, uh, you know, it, it's easy to see in the modern world uh, that the suffering is increasing. And the notion then is that there is something that's causing that suffering. So this is where the logic comes in that Shenzhen is formalized. The second noble truth is that uh, that's, suffering has a cause. Um, and in Buddhism, there's different ways to think about it, but it's a sort of a drivenness or a craving is one way to think about it. Desire, yearning. Yeah. Desire, right. It's the sort of drivenness of behavior in this sort of fundamental way is driving you to do things that are leading to, to your suffering. And so oh, there is suffering. There's a necessary cause of that suffering. And then the third one is that there's a sufficient intervention. And, and then there's the Eightfold Path in Buddhism, which is sort of the ethical framework for Buddhism. And so what's really interesting about this logic is it says there is a, a thing called suffering that's in the system that then has a necessary cause and a sufficient way to remove it. And if that logic is true, and we assume that the brain has something to do with suffering and consciousness, uh, which I think has got to be the case, then it means that there is a system in the brain that we can inhibit. I don't want to say removed because that sounds like I'm going to do some weird surgery on you, but there's a system in the brain that you can inhibit that should inhibit the cause. And if you can inhibit the cause, you inhibit the suffering. That's uh, wow. a, a okay. couple of leaps that we have to get to. Um, but at least that is a, a set of arrows that we can start testing in the lab. And as a practitioner of, Mindfulness, I don't consider myself a Buddhist, but as someone who buys into some of the Buddhist framework and Buddhist philosophy, it's very exciting for me as a scientist to think about, ah, maybe I can test that. Uh, much as the Dalai Lama said, if you can test it and it's not true, then they'll, you know, change their whole belief system. So maybe you can find the brain area that is responsible for the suffering that if we remove it, will let the suffering go. Exactly. Or at least the brain areas that are um, causing suffering. Um, and I think those systems or causing are, our experience well, of the suffering. Yes, exactly. Causing, causing that's, a, that's more accurate. Yes, one's, one's experience of suffering. There may be external yeah. causes in the world. Uh, how we the fact that we suffer is only because we generate that sensation of suffering inside of ourselves. Yeah. And so it's it, it really points to a different way to think about this. Um, I you know, from a scientific point of view and from a philosophical point of view, it, it may not be possible to remove all, all the suffering and you may not want to do that. Suffering is there for a reason as well. And so I know a lot of your listeners are probably thinking, wait a minute, my suffering is good. Uh, and in a philosophical sense, that's probably true. It drives you to protect yourself. Uh, but it also drives you to cause a lot of suffering in yourself as well. And that really then points to systems that we can act on to inhibit that would then remove a lot of that self-interference or that sort of self-manipulation that's going on in the system 
to allow you to be more present in the moment. And so, you know, what we're trying to do is sort of loosen up that causal nature in the system while you're learning how to apply your attention, while you're learning these mindfulness skills, so you can more uh, appropriately be in the present moment and, and sort of be fulfilled in the moment. That's awesome. And for anybody who can't wait till you discover what the brain region is that we can target to reduce suffering, we remind everyone that this sheer practice of mindfulness and meditation is the practice that allows us to intervene, that is the practice that allows us to work on whatever the brain region is that is yet to be identified. Mindfulness happens to have the property of doing that to then help you reduce and relieve your suffering. Yeah, we don't think we're ever going to replace mindfulness, although when our mindfulness training, although when I saw the Dalai Lama give the talk to 15,000 neuroscientists at the Society for Neuroscience meeting, he actually did say, if you can find an intervention to give him the effects of meditating without meditating, he would be the first person to sign up. So, you know, this Dalai Lama proved that you could find an intervention that would give you the effects of meditating. But uh, as a scientist, as a brain scientist, um, and thinking about the way that the brain changes, the way the brain learns, and the way the body learns, really, we're not just talking about the brain, we're also talking about the body. Uh, these are slow processes, you probably can't, you're probably not going to have a button that you press and you zap my, you know, my system zaps your brain, and all of a sudden, you're just done, you're done suffering. I, I, I don't think that that's how the system works. Uh, and so there's going to be a lot of effort involved in this. But the question is, instead of taking 30 years, can it take 15 or can it take 10 or can it take two before you get these really dramatic effects of meditating or mindfulness? So from the Dalai Lama's edict, Jay has his marching orders. <laughs> That's right. So thank you very much for your important work in helping to understand what's going on under these under the lid and these tried and true practices and help to identify ways that we may all help to reduce our suffering. Thank you. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thanks very much for elucidating some of the processes that go on inside of our mind um, so that we can become more aware of them and apply our own conscious awareness to these unconscious processes and be more successful at intervening and creating greater choice in our lives. Well, it's my pleasure. And I hope it motivates people to continue to sit on the pillow and and do their mindfulness practice because that's where the good stuff is. It's pretty funny that the guy who's creating the the scientific intervention to try to speed up mindfulness, you know, the ultimate edict at the end of this is <laughs> go sit on your pillow. Yes, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> and and that, it's going to be that way for a long time, I'm afraid. Our technology is going to take a long time to validate and test. And, and that's we not a bad plan thing. first to take it. No, no, it's not a bad thing because like you said, there's a lot of potential pitfalls and issues that can emerge that we are very well aware of. And so this technology in general, as you know, needs to do, be developed with a lot of care and a lot of intention. And, you know, we, I think, especially in our society, we want a quick fix. We want a button. We want a pill that we can just push and we're done with it. Uh, but we're really talking about deep systems of the self and how the self relates to itself and how we understand ourselves. And at the end of the day, the goal for us is treatment first. So we're taking this into the clinic to try to treat addiction, chronic pain, and things like that. But we know that the long-term benefits of mindfulness are deep transformations in happiness. And we don't just mean like the state of happiness, but we mean happiness broadly and deeply defined. Uh, we're talking about self-fulfillment, meaning in your life, better relationships for your life. Uh, behavior change in a way that, you know, leads to positive outcomes. And so this, this picture of happiness that emerges, it can't just emerge in one day. Uh, it, it's a long-term practice. You have to integrate it back in your life. Your family members have to readjust to the new, happier you. You know, all of these things start changing and that takes time. And so, unfortunately, I don't think that there's just a, a quick fix for this stuff. But you know, that's fine because we get to live our lives out um, with this new sort of relationship to ourselves. That's awesome. And we should take a moment to talk about Muse vis-a-vis -vis this. I usually don't bring this up in a podcast, but as people are listening to this, they might be wondering, well, hold on, like, what does Muse do? Is that a happiness button? Like, is it zapping your brain? Um, and so we should t just 
take a few moments to to address that. I have a muse myself. I, I uh, play with it. I, w- I will say you guys haven't paid me anything. Muse has not paid me. I'm not a consultant with Muse. <laughs> Uh, but I, I do love the device, and I think it has taken a giant leap forward for many of us. I, I think you had Mikey Siegel on your podcast recently, so he's a good friend of mine. And many of us have been trying to do what you did, essentially, with Muse, which is create a device that can scale, that allows people to learn these mindfulness skills. If you can give a person a, a deep taste of what it's like to get out of the sort of self-referential negative talk space and just be present, especially in life, you know, being present with their child, for example, it's deeply motivating. The problem is it's hard to get there uh, in the beginning. And so I think Muse is really great because it's this really cool, you know, very techie device that you wear that gives you some real-time feedback about where you are in the practice and how you're making progress. Um, and that's really so hard in the beginning. I mean, I, I think a lot of people start making progress in their practice before they're consciously aware of it. And that's one of the sort of issues with it in the beginning is that you're like, oh, it's not working. And if you just would have kept on it for another two weeks, the whole thing would have shifted and you would have gone, oh, my God, this is what it's all about. But people give up before they get there. And so I think Muse is such a great tool at giving people you know, those first taste and giving them some feedback and getting the brain to sort of move into that space. And so just to clarify, um, Muse doesn't zap your brain. There's no energy being put into you. It's uh, just like a penny on your forehead. It's an EEG reading what's going on inside your brain and just presenting that information back to you. So it's just showing you when you're focused and when your mind has wandered. And so then you know, oh, I'm focused now. My mind has wandered now. Now I can make a different choice. So it's a EEG electroencephalogram that's tracking your brainwave activity. So it's the um, energy that comes off your head. And it's just being able to passively track in the same way that a heart rate monitor tracks your heart or, you know, an Apple watch can track stuff from your wrist. Um, it's just tracking what's going on and presenting or showing you what's going on inside the brain in the process. Which is great. This is called neurofeedback. And I actually started as a neurofeedback researcher before I went to grad school. Um, so what you did with Muse is literally what I was trying to do right after I met the Dalai Lama. <laughs> um, because, you know, it, it's always better to not put energy into the brain if you can. Um, so there's this thing called the Alara principle in medicine, which is basically use the smallest amount of intervention to get the effect that you're trying to get. And I think Muse has beautifully created a paradigm for that because you do give people the effect. You're not putting any energy into the brain in this case, uh, but you're feeding the, the information back to them. And, you know, you can help the person move in. Now, I will say that one sort of direction that we want to go in in the lab is actually combining EEG, like the Muse, with our brain stimulation. Um, so I don't think you and I have actually talked about this, but the ultimate dream helmet for our device would be having something like the muse that's reading the brain activity and then triggering the ultrasound, uh, triggering the brain stimulation while you're meditating. So yeah, that's the kind of five-year plan for the lab. And if that, if that works, then basically people would come to our clinic to get the intervention. So you know, that's that's our vision for the future. Well, it looks like we have a collaboration coming. And thank you. I didn't mean to, to, to turn it into a muse thing. I just felt like people might be con- confused. Is is this thing zapping your brain too? And I wanted to make it very clear. There's, there's no brain zapping going on. Um, so in the muse, you're giving them visual representation of their brain state. Whereas in our studies, we're directly stimulating the brain, but that is also information that the brain is using. Well, thank you so much for sharing your time and knowledge today. It's greatly appreciated, and we look forward to following your work. Oh, my pleasure. It's very good to talk to you, and this was a lot of fun. Thank you. That was Dr. Jay Sanguinetti. You can find out more at jsanguinetti.com. That's S-A-N-G-U-I-N-E-T-T-I. You also heard about the work of Shinzen Young. You can find Shinzen's meditations at shinzen.org, S-H-I-N-Z-E-N.org. You also heard about Muse the brain-sensing headband that helps you meditate. Muse is a clinical-grade EEG that's able to help your meditation. 
It's a little consumer wearable that you can pick up at Best Buy. So in the same way that a Fitbit tracks your heart rate or your movement, Muse tracks your mind during meditation and gives you real-time feedback to know when you're focused and when your mind is wandering. Muse is used by hundreds of thousands of people. Moms, dads, Olympic athletes, big CEOs, first responders, doctors, nurses, everyday individual. Hundreds of thousands of people have either established their meditation practice using Muse or enhanced their practice if they're an expert meditator. Because Muse helps you know what goes on in your mind to guide you to quote unquote, do it right. If you want to find out more about Muse, you can check it out at choosemuse.com. We also just did a very exciting study come out from the Mayo Clinic that showed that breast cancer patients awaiting surgery were able to benefit from using Muse during their cancer care process by improving their quality of life and decreasing their stress. So that was an incredible finding and very exciting to be able to share with everyone. So that's it for this week's Untangle. Patricia will be back with more next week. Until then, enjoy staying in the present moment. Tune in to what your basal ganglia are doing and the habits that you've been building or breaking. And spend a little time seeing what happens when you're in that default mode network, when your mind wanders, and then when you choose to come back to the present moment. Enjoy your life and all that it brings. Much love. Take care.